Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director for Lectures and Seminars here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I wanted to welcome everybody and thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium and take a moment to remind everyone to please silence their cell phones. Uh, additionally, for those watching online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. Now it is my pleasure to introduce the host of, the t of today's program. He's the director for the Center for National Defense here at the Heritage Foundation, Tom Sporn. Thank you, Andrew. Well, good afternoon, everybody. How are we doing today? It's, uh, nothing going on, I guess, in Washington, D.C. today, so what, what better chance to talk about something of real uh, import for our nation? We have a great program today to discuss the threat and the ways to reduce the threat uh, posed by electromagnetic pulse to the grid of the United States. It's a topic that I was, I was telling my wife about it this morning, and she said, oh, that's, that sounds like a killer topic. And I said, no, you really, you don't know it is a killer topic. And, it, and some estimates have said it could kill up to 200 million Americans if, in fact, the worst case scenario comes to pass. Uh, it was brought to the forefront a little over a year ago on September 3rd, 2017, when the North Korean state news agency announced that it was able to load a hydrogen bomb on a missile. And the news release went on to say that it is a multifunctional thermonuclear nuke with great destructive power, which can be detonated even at high altitudes for a super powerful EMP attack. It almost sounds like something that could be written in a tweet, doesn't it? We can fit that in there. In any, yes. So it may have been, I think, the first time that another nation has threatened uh, an EMP attack. Here to discuss this threat, we are honored to welcome as our keynote speaker, Senator Ron Johnson, the senior senator from Wisconsin, the chairman of the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, and a leader in public policy on this topic. Senator Johnson completed his Bachelor's of Science in Business from the University of Minnesota and went on to earn his Master of Business Administration. As I said, he serves as the Chairman of the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and also serves on the Budget, Foreign Relation, Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committees. Senator Johnson introduced the Critical Infrastructure Protection Act of 2016 to secure critical infrastructure against electromagnetic and other threats. Senator Johnson has been a long and leading advocate for protecting the nation against emerging threats such as EMP, and we're lucky to have him today. He will speak, and then he's agreed to take your questions for a few minutes. So ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to please welcome Senator Johnson to the podium. 
Thank you, Tom. Or again, thank you, Tom. Uh, and I really want to thank the Heritage Foundation for taking this threat seriously. Uh, not enough people do. Uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different than what I normally do when I give a talk, where I generally talk extemporaneously and tell a few stories. I'm going to tell a few stories, but I'm going to read chronologically all the warnings we've had to really underscore the point at how profound the fact that we're not doing anything about it truly is. But this all dates back. You know, the whole, the whole concern about EMP and GMD, geomagnetic disturbance, the impact on, on our electronic uh, assets, you know, our, our electrical grid, uh, literally dates back to 1859 with the Carrington effect. And it was uh, noticed by a British astronomer, astronomer Richard Carrington. And you know, back then, it, it lit up the sky. You certainly noticed uh, it did shut down telegraph uh, systems. Uh, sparks flew. Uh, telegraph uh, operators were, were uh, got sh you know electric shocks. But but beyond that, we we didn't have much uh, nowhere close to the type of type of electrical infrastructure we have today. Uh, but it obviously made an impact. And so, so aware of this. And and by the way, that's over 150 years ago. Uh, on average, we have a massive solar flare that causes the Carrington effect. Every, every once, about every 100 years, which means, as Dr. Richard Garwin, uh, one, one of the individuals that uh, Enrico Fermi said was one of the few true geniuses he ever met, testified before our committee, said that means, this is actually pretty easy math, I can do it, we have a 10% chance every decade of having something that massive that could do, you know, their estimates, 0.6 to $2 trillion worth of damage. Uh, and we've done nothing about it. So, but, so it starts, the tale starts in 1859. Uh, once the nuclear, nuclear weapons were developed, we started testing them. And we started doing high altitude tests in 1958. Uh, that was the, the hardtack program and the Argus program. Um, and we started seeing some effects. Then the Soviet Union started in 1961 and continued those tests through, through November 1962, both Soviet Union and, and uh, uh, the U.S. Was, were testing high-altitude blasts. And I just want to read you. This is right out of Wikipedia, so you know it's 100% accurate. But I just, I just wanted to give a description of what effects were noticed. So uh, the, the worst effect of the Soviet high-altitude test occurred on October 22, 1962. That was a 300 kiloton uh, weapon, uh, and they blasted off two, one at 150-kilometer height, one at 290-kilometers. When the 350 kiloton missile warhead detonated near, and I cannot pronounce this, this uh, city's name, uh, at 290 kilometer altitude, the EMP fused 570 kilometers of overhead telephone line with a measured current of 2,500 amps, started a fire that burned down the Karaganga power plant, and shut down 1,000 kilometers of shallow buried power cables between two cities. That's a pretty significant effect. Uh, Earlier that year, on July 9th, in the Star, Starfish, Starfish Prime, uh, the U.S. detonated a weapon. Um, here was the effect. The weaponeers became quite worried, they said, when three satellites in low Earth orbit were disabled. These man-made radiation belts eventually crippled one-third of all satellites in low Earth orbit. Seven satellites failed over the months following the test as radiation damaged their solar arrays or electronics, including the first commercial relay communication satellite, Telstar. Now, fortunately, we did, you know, enter into a nuclear test ban treaty, and, and those high-altitude uh, tests were stopped. 
The problem from a standpoint of studying EMP is we just don't know and we don't have tests on what EMP can do to our current electrical grid and all of our electrical components. We have to just theorize. Same way we have to, to a certain extent, theorize in terms of GMD, although we're far more certain about that as well as we have the solution for GMD, but we're not, we're not implementing it. So let me go on. March 1989, Quebec blackout from a solar storm, 12-hour blackout. Uh, July 16th, 1997, Congress became uh, a little concerned about this, and we began a series of hearings. In all, and I can list them out here, I, I might, uh, 15 congressional hearings since 1997. Uh, the House Committee was uh, electromagnetic pulse threats. Uh, two years later, another House Committee, electromagnetic pulse should this be a problem of national concern to private enterprise, small businesses large and small, as well as government? Pretty valid question. Uh, later that year, House Armed Services Committee. In May, of 2000, in May of year 2000, and this is to Heritage Foundation's great credit, you published your first EMP report titled America's Vulnerability to a Different Nuclear Threat, an Electromagnetic Pulse. October 2000, the MP Commission was established. So, again, all of that... Uh, highlighting of the problem did result in action. So in the 2000, uh, FY 2001 NDAA, uh, we actually set up a commission to assess the threat, assess the vulnerability of U.S. military and civilian systems, the capability to repair and recover, and the, fe uh, the feasibility and cost of hardening. Again, it's very responsible action on the part of the United States government to really take a look at something that, that by that point we'd already known for about 40 years. But we're finally starting to act on it. Not a bad thing. In October 2003, the Halloween solar flares uh, was uh, diagnosed by the GOES satellites um, and affected satellites and air, aircraft riding, uh, routing. The next day, again, Congress acted by holding another hearing. Highlighted, in 2004, the EMP Commission released its executive report. The top findings, uh, EMP attack could cause unprecedented cascading failures. I would, to a certain extent, go, duh. Uh, current vulnerability invites and rewards attack if not corrected, and correction is feasible and within the nation's means to accomplish. Again, we continue to have a series of, you know, three, three or more hearings over the next few years. In 2008, the 2008 EMP Commission issued their report, Critical National Infrastructure Report, and, again, their conclusions, EMP attack puts society at risk of catastrophic consequences. Many people would die from extended power outage. Deterrence is not... Effective is not effective counter. Nation needs to prepare to manage effects. Um, in 2009, NASA funded a National Academy of Science report said that $2 trillion would be caused by a blackout uh, because of an EMP attack. So again, I mean, I, I could keep going and going and going, and I, to a certain extent, I almost feel I want to. My first, uh, I'd heard about this, again, like most Americans, like, ah, that's... That never happened, right? I mean, what's, what are the chances? Well, the chances are 10% every decade in terms of GMD. In terms of EMP, let, let's hope it's close to zero. But the effects are catastrophic. I, I first really became aware of how serious this was in uh, June of 2014 when I walked into a meeting scheduled by staff. God bless staff. You know, they just set me up in a meeting. And I walk in, and I'm, I'm handed this report. Uh, the near-term strategy to counter the EMP threat by Henry Cooper and Robert Faltzgraf. And I sat down, I listened to these two men, and my jaw dropped, and I became engaged. In, in this, and there is a pretty interesting picture here, it actually shows 
I mean, this, they're talking about EMP and GMD. They actually have a picture, figure two on page nine. This is showing from one of those GOES satellites um, a massive solar flare that occurred on uh, July 23, 2012. Here's Earth. We missed experiencing this massive solar flare on the order of the Carrington effect that could potentially cost $2 trillion of the damage by nine days. Okay? Uh, that got my attention. Uh, and it's held my attention ever since. Again, more, more hearings, books written. Uh, a book in 2009, I, I glossed over it. But uh, now this, this is actually fiction. Um, One, what is it, one second to, yeah, one second after by William For Fortune. Uh, and then, of course, we also had Lights Out by Ted Koppel. Uh, we held a hearing with uh, Dr. Richard Garwin, again, that, that genius that uh, Enrico Fermi uh, mentioned. One of the two, two things that struck, out, struck me in that hearing, uh, one of the committee members mentioned that Somebody that he knew they respected called this whole EMP GMD hokum. And so I just went down. I think we had uh, uh, CIA Director Wolsey. We had Edward Gar uh, Richard Garwin. We had a number of eminent scientists in that hearing. And I just went down the list. I said, is this, is this hokum? No, 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 no. The other thing that's interesting about that hearing is in terms of relationship to GMD, this is first out of two times in hearings where we had uh, a witness talking about how, how would we handle GMD. And the solution literally was, well, we'll have plenty of warning, we'll just shut down the electrical grid. Okay, the, the follow-on question is, who orders that? Un understanding exactly what happens when you shut down the electrical grid. So that really is not the kind of solution we're, we're looking for. Um, I, I think I made my point. I, I didn't know how long, I'd, I've got a lot more. I have a lot more. I could probably go on, based on this rate, another 10, 15 minutes and just talk about all the warnings, all the hearings, all the admiring of the problem. We do that a lot in, in Washington, D.C., in Congress, whether it's, whether it's cyber, whether it's bio, whether it's EMP, GMD. We, we sit there and admire the problem. We pass pieces of legislation to develop a strategy or take a look at a study. And I guess my main point here today, it's been my main, main point for a couple of years, it's time to do something to do something. But in order to do something, we really need somebody in charge. It's the same problem we had with, with bio threats. Same, I just spoke at the, Heritage, or the Chamber of Commerce earlier on cyber. We need somebody in charge. This thing, we need somebody in charge. You know, we, we actually did pass a similar language to that Critical Infra Infrastructure Protection Act in, in a National Defense Authorization Act. It required a report out of DHS that was due the summer 2017. I mean, last time I checked, is the fall of 2018. We don't even have the, we, and by the way, that took years to pass a bill that just called for a strategy to address this. It took years just to get government to say, hey, develop a strategy. And then once we passed it, they're, they're more than a year overdue at developing that strategy. Now, we had Scott McBride from Idaho National Lab. Uh, I went out there in the summer. He came in and testified. Brilliant man. I don't understand 99% of the things he's talking about. But I do know we have the capability and we have the intelligent people that can not only develop additional testing, which is going to be required. We're going to have to spend money so we can really test this so that whatever, we, whatever equipment we install 
will mitigate the harm. But it is well past time to utilize the, the brilliance of people like Scott McBride and the people we have at the National Labs to determine what we can do now. And here's a couple suggestions. There are somewhere between 300 and 3,000. Can't get a solid number on this. You know, people just dispute in terms of exactly what we ought to do. 300 to 3,000 large, large power transformers that literally cannot be replaced overnight. Some of them it will take over a year and a half to replace. Some of them are so large we can't even put them in place anymore. We ought to right now start building and putting in place backup large power transformers in just in case an EMP or GMD wipes them out so we can put them immediately on stream. Whether we are talking about a kinetic attack or a cyber attack or an EMP or GMD destruction of our electrical grid, at some point in time, some disaster is going to strike and we're going to have to restart our grid. We're going to have to restore power. You know, we ought to plan on what that's going to look like. You know, how are we going to do it? Again, large power transformers is, is one of the solutions. But there are also capacitors you can put in line that certainly know how to alleviate uh, or mitigate the, the effect of GMD. It's just like it's lightning, okay? Uh, we know how expensive it is. We know how to, how to fix that. It's time for Congress to pony up. It, it would literally cost single-digit billions to do so. Now, again, let, let me remind you, I'm on the Budget Committee. Our government spends $4,000 billion per year. $2 billion isn't even a rounding error. Why haven't we done it? Why haven't we done it? So again, I think I've made my point. I probably made more than my point, okay? We've been forewarned. This has been over 50 years since those nuclear tests, those high-altitude nuclear tests. We know the damage can be done. We know how catastrophic. We've seen fictional books. We've seen other books. We've seen reports from GAO, from Heritage Foundation. We just haven't done anything about it. And it's, it's far past time to do so. So with that, I'm happy to entertain any questions you have. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate that. And uh, time for some questions. I would ask you to uh, raise your hand, and then we'll have a microphone come around so that our live stream audience can uh, also hear your question. If you don't mind, uh, identify yourself and then make your question as concise as possible. So we'll start with you, sir. Senator, hi, Frank Afney from the Center for Security Policy. Well, Frank, Thank you for incognito here. Your leadership, yeah, deep cover. Um, listen, uh, you asked rhetorically maybe the question that I think ought to be front and center here, which is why haven't we done something? And part of it is, I think you know better than most, is not only is there nobody in charge, but the powers that be are resistant to changes to the status quo and I think specifically the nation's utilities. And it turns out they've got a lot of stroke um, in people in the line of work you're in. Incentivizing them to be part of the solution by cost recovery keeps coming up as one of the solutions in addition to the technical fixes and so on. Could you talk a little bit about maybe your experience with all of that in SIPA, for example, and I commend you again for your leadership on that, but how do we overcome that, uh, either through incentives or other techniques? Uh, again, I think the biggest problem is we don't have the specific test, the specific science that tells us exactly what's going to happen with either E1, E2, or E3, you know, EMP or GMD attack to our current electrical grid, to our current electronics. 
So absent that specific data, you know, what, what the utility companies basically do is say, oh, this is, this is overblown. I mean, like, like that member in our committee said, well, I, I hear from experts, this is hokum, okay? And so that's, you know, most, most Americans, when they see something that's just, you know, let, let, let's say you go to the doctor and, you know, one doctor, you know, that could be cancer. And you go to another doctor, you go, no, you're fine. I mean, you, just, you don't ask the question again, right? It's like, oh, good, I'm, I'm, I'm home free. So that's all it really takes is to diffuse any, you know, any kind of momentum to do something about this is have the utility companies, who are the experts? I mean, they're the electrical engineers saying, this is so overblown. Uh, we can survive this easily. We've studied it. We got it in place. So that's, that, that's what I'm saying. So I'm not looking for, I, I personally couldn't care less whether the utility companies contribute a dime. American taxpayer ought to pay for this. You know, quick little uh, uh, side note on this thing is when, when I was interviewing uh, now Chief of Staff John Kelly, he was going to be chair of the Secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, I asked him about this because he's going to be Secretary of Homeland Security. They're charged by the EMP Commission with, you know, certain quick fixes along with the Department of Energy. And I asked him, do you think this is hokum? And his response to me was pretty interesting. He said, well, well Senator, I'm, I'm not a scientist this way, but I know we spent billions hardening our military assets against this, so I figure there's got to be something to it. Uh, so, again, it's, it's, you know, they're taking the, the threat real from a military standpoint. We just haven't done it in our civilian utilities. So my solution to that is I'm not going to ask them to, to spend anything. I think we need to be very sensitive. If we start putting capacitors, what does that do to the – you know, the load on the grid, again, I do not understand these things, but I understand a grid is incredibly complex, and you have to keep it balanced, and you start throwing things into it, that causes for concern. But again, that's why we have to use our national labs, hop on this pro uh, problem as quickly as possible, put in place the solution for GMD, because I think we've got that one down pretty well as we're working on better science in terms of the E1, E2 effect, which is the, the initial effects with the EMP. Okay. Sure. Good afternoon. My name is Arash Shatra. Um, since D uh, DHS was established uh, with the Homeland Security Act of 2002, uh, there has not been a separate standalone authorization bill for uh, DHS. Uh, in 2017, for example, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act uh, was used to amend um, the Homeland Security Act. Is there any prospect in the future of a standalone Homeland Security Authorization Bill? I would say as long as we haven't solved our, our border security and we haven't fixed our legal immigration system, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, it's obviously greatly disappointing to me. We, we passed, a, I think Chairman McCall did a good job of getting a memorandum of understanding from all the community's jurisdictions. It's one of the problems. You know, DHS was really a combination of about 22 different agencies. They all have their separate committee's jurisdiction. I've seen multiple charts on this. It's, it's like like 100 committees and, and subcommittees. And so Chairman McCall got a memorandum in the House to have all those folks waive their jurisdiction so he could develop a, a uh, authorization bill. I had some success in the Senate, but other committees maintained their jurisdiction. So we did a little bit skinnier DHS authorization bill, passed it pretty much unanimously through our committee. We, we kept out all the immigration things, so let's concentrate on the areas of agreement. No chance we could bring that to the House because the minute we would, they're going to bring up the Dreamers, they're going to bring up all the divisive issues where we don't have the area of agreement. So I think it's very unfortunate. 
we'll keep pushing along. What we're starting to do now is we're kind of picking out things like, uh, you know, the CISA Act so we can rename NPB, NPPD, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security uh, Agency. Uh, so we're starting to pick those things out and get some of the necessary authorizations in place on a, on a piecemeal basis. But uh, no, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's, that's politics. Rachel Zesimos with the Heritage Foundation. What are the merits of focusing on an EMP event rather than cyber attacks, which some would perceive as more urgent? I think we need to focus on both. I think, you know, the more likely, because it happens all the time, is cyber. You know, we've seen the Russians shut down electrical grids in eastern Ukraine twice. Uh, the advantage that eastern Ukraine had is they have older technology, they have breakers, they could restart their, their systems. Um, you know, we have reports of, of uh, you know, Russian interference hacking into our control systems in our electrical grid. So that is a clear and present danger. Again, I would say GMD is a clear and present danger as well. 10% chance a decade is, you know, it's going to happen sometime. And you saw how, how narrowly we, we missed it uh, just in 2012. So we need to work on both. But again, that's when I said we need to do something. Let's start with, from the very, let's start from after the catastrophe. You know, who's going to respond? Who's going to be in charge when the power grid goes down, no matter what the cause? What do we need to put in place pre-planned, just like FEMA? You know, we learned a lot from Hurricane Katrina. You know, we learned to pre-position things. You know, we, we learned a lot. Let's not have to learn that. Let's think it all the way to the end. Okay, in the disaster, our electrical grid's down. What are some of the problems? Either kinetic attack, a cyber attack, or EMP or GMD. And then let's start building it up, and let's start doing it. It won't be perfect, but at least we'll be able to restore parts of our grid. And obviously, you start prioritizing. What's the most important sections? What are the grids we have to get up first? And well, first around big cities, probably. Around other critical infrastructure. Um, you have to plan that. That's what we're looking for a strategy here. Uh, and I'm just, again, I'm, I'm tired of admiring these problems. We have to start doing something. Sir. Tom Callender, Heritage Foundation. Uh, you said one of the key pieces to develop the technical solutions is is the testing here. Uh, is the you know the roadblock to that has it been specifically uh, funding issues for for the national labs to do that? And and you also stated that uh, you know the power companies say, well, we've got data that shows that we're fine. Are they willing to share their data, their experimentation that provides that to the national labs so that we can move forward and address from a technical aspect, these issues? Well, I, I've yet in any kind of committee hearing where we're discussing a problem where the, the first solution wasn't more funding. Um, I, I would always question that. You know, what, what we're really talking about, I don't think really requires that much. I was at the Idaho National Lab. They've got a, it's, it's mainly a large area, and it's got a functioning electrical system. You know, to set up some of these test sites and stuff is not going to be that grotesquely expensive. Again, not, not even close to rounding errors in terms of our budget. So money shouldn't be the issue. It's really about who's going to be in charge. Now, from my standpoint, I think DHS has enough responsibilities. They really do. I mean, you can throw just about anything under Homeland Security. But in this case, you have to look at where is the greatest expertise? Who, who, who have, who have, which agency has the personnel that knows more about this? And that's Department of Energy. And by the way, GAO and, and the EMP Commission did cite both DOE and DHS, gave them kind of dual responsibilities of doing these quick fixes. I would try and, by and large, if I were to pick the agency to be in charge of this, I would think DOE would be, probably be the best. 
Okay, and I hope we kind of come to that conclusion and start moving forward from that. It's one of the reasons I went to the Idaho National Lab to kind of make that point. Sir, you had a question. James Stefane, Heritage Foundation. So the U.S. has had EMP commissions on and off from 2001 until the present, and the 2018 NDA reauthorized the EMP commission until October 1st, 2019. Is there still value in maintaining the EMP commission, and if so, for what purpose? Until we fix the problem, I think there's absolute value. Um, I know there's some problems with the, the prior one, but again, you, you, you listen to the 50 years worth of, you know, it's not chicken little, but I mean, raising the alarm here in terms of we have to do something, we haven't done anything. So, you know, the EMP commission, truthfully, is probably the best avenue for having the type of the, the authority to raise the, the alarm bells here to get something done. Again, you know, Heritage Foundation has done a great job, GAO, you know, all these authors that are writing about this. I mean, all those things help contribute. Um, you know, par part of the problem, I suppose, with fictionalized books is people just, well, it's just fiction. Um, yeah, but it's fiction based on a real-life scenario. So, no, I, I think the EMP Commission, I, I, would, I hope we keep one in place until we've actually solved this problem. Hi, my name is Steve. Uh, I'm a student. Thank you for being here, Senator. I was just wondering, um, has there been an established scenario of how the military would respond in the case of EMP attack, like what the appropriate response by the military would be towards the rogue nation that potentially launches it? I, I can't answer that question. I mean, I hope so. I hope they got something on the shelf, but it wouldn't surprise me if they didn't. You know, we have all kinds of disaster recovery plans, but you know, we, we've run uh, different exercises on different levels of threat, and I think generally the, the conclusion of most of those exercises that we're not prepared, whether it's a bio threat, whether it's a cyber threat, you know, you know, unfortunately, we're human beings. We procrastinate and we only react to crises. Uh, this is something, and when we're talking about our, you know, there is no more critical infrastructure than our electrical grid. And I don't think we have adequately planned for, you know, a real catastrophe. that. Sorry. Uh, so you mentioned how DHS in the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act had been directed to submit reports and do various things in relation to EMP, and it's not been done yet. Uh, that's kind of foreign to me as a military officer. Usually we try and follow the law whenever possible, at least. And uh, I was wondering if, if, I mean, are you getting notes from DHS saying we're trying as hard as we can, we can't, we can't do it, or how, or the, what's happening? The dog ate our report? Something like that. Uh, well, yes, first sir. of all, you know, Department of Defense, there's a little more accountability than other agencies. Uh, no, you know, we have, we've been told that they did prepare a strategy. It wasn't acceptable to the secretary, kind of sent it back down for, for resubmission. Uh, okay, but uh, that, that was a number of months ago. Let, let's see the final report. You know, we're, we're also looking for the 2018 quadrennial review out of DHS as well. Um, part of my concern about pressing too hard with Department of Homeland Security, you know, they have FEMA under them. We had a massive amount of damage and destruction in the last hurricane season, when hurricane season now. You know, the problem with DHS is there are just so many problem areas folded under that organization. 
That, that's why I say, from my standpoint, the best place for this responsibility and accountability to reside is really Department of Energy. Uh, they got enough things to do, too, but they have far less than DHS, and I think they will devote uh, greater time and attention, have the capability of doing so. But no, we're, you know, we're, as you can tell, I'm, I'm here, I'm talking about this all the time. We, we put as much pressure on as possible. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping to see that strategy soon. But again, thank you all for, for attending. Thank you, Heritage Foundation, for, for helping highlight this, because that's what it's going to take. Thank you. Well, that was wonderful. I don't know about you. I, I just enjoyed the heck out of that. Um, so we're back with the panel, as, as uh, I guess Brett says on, uh, on Fox News, and uh, a great panel, too. And uh, so here to further explore this issue, we have three experts, each representing a different aspect of the issue. And I'll introduce them all at once, and then they'll speak in that order, uh, probably about 10 or perhaps less minutes apiece, something like that, and then uh, we'll have time for your questions. So First will be Dr. to my left, Dr. George Baker. He's Professor, em, how do you say that word? Em, emeritus. Emeritus of Applied Science at James Madison University, where he taught both graduate and undergraduate courses and directed the university's Institute for Infrastructure and Information Agency. He spent much of his career at the Defense Nuclear Agency and the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. During this time, he directed national programs to harden strategic systems against EMP and served as principal staff for the Congressional EMP Commission from 2002 to 2008. Currently, Dr. Baker is the CEO of Baycor LLC, a consulting company dedicated to developing preparedness against electromagnetic threats, and is a senior advisor to the EMP Commission. He holds master's and doctorate degrees in physics. Next to Dr. Baker is Mr. David Brown, Mr. Brown serves as Senior Vice President of Excelon Corporation, an American Fortune 100 energy company headquartered in Chicago. He has been with Excelon and its predecessor, PECO Energy Company, since 1990. In this role, Mr. Brown is a liaison to Congress and federal agencies and works closely with national trade associations representing electric, natural gas, and nuclear energy. He has held leadership roles in several institutes including the Edison Electric Institute and the Nuclear Energy Institute. Mr. Brown is experienced in nuclear fuel issues, including uranium enrichment and materials transportation. And then finally, we will hear from Ms. Michaela Dodge. Ms. Michaela Dodge is the Senior Policy Analyst for Defense and Strategic Policy at the Heritage Foundation's Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. She specializes in missile defense, nuclear weapons modernization and arms control, and has written extensively on a number of strategic defense issues, including the potential impacts of an EMP on the United States. 
Ms. Dodge holds a Master's of Science in Defense and Strategic Studies from Missouri State University, and her work has appeared in multiple publications. So, as I said earlier, we'll, uh, the panelists will each talk, and then at the end we'll have time for your questions. And Dr. Baker, sir, if we could start with you, please. All right. Good. So I've got some uh, charts that I'll go through. I'll, in, in the limited time, it's going to be sort of like a pinwheel, I think, but, but I'll, I'll try to uh, get through these. And uh, I've got a clicker here that I, I think should work. So uh, I, I want to talk, this is my outline, and uh, uh, you can read that. And then I was asked specifically to talk about the EMP Commission and also asked specifically to talk about what do we know about EMP and what are some of the remaining questions that we have. So I'll cover those. So there are a number of uh, motivating factors. Of, uh, Senator Johnson talked about North Korea's threat. And uh, uh, back in the uh, uh, early uh, 2000s, there was a presidential commission that uh, studied the possibility of long-term outages in the United States and uh, issued several reports, but they, they, were, they concluded that uh, we could have uh, continental-scale outages that would last for months to years. And EMP was one of the top threats, but there are any number of uh, physical and cyber uh, uh, types of attack that could also, and also weather-related attacks that uh, would, would and, and solar storms could, could cause this. Um, and uh, the, the grid as it stands is not protected, so that's the challenge. We, uh, Senator Johnson uh, talked about that. <clears throat> I really, uh, I think Heritage really picked a, 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 a very timely uh, uh, juncture here to have this uh, discussion because we're really at a watershed moment. Uh, uh, we're adding uh, more and more control systems. People talk about smart cities, uh, uh, smart grids. The Internet of Things uh, is, is, is ranging into the billions. Uh, there's this new fifth-generation network. So we're going to have to put in new cell. I don't know if you know this, new cell towers across the country to support 5G. So there's we're at a juncture here where we can do it right and, and get the protection built in, or we're going to we're in for a train wreck. It's just going to make matters worse. And uh, I'm reminded of a, of. A, uh, presentation I heard by Professor Charles Ter uh, Perot at Yale, <clears throat> he coined the term vulnerability of complexity. As systems become more complex, which they are, uh, the vulnerability increases. The more moving parts, the more uh, uh, transistors in the network, uh, the, the more vulnerability we have. So, so very important time, and we need to get our arms around this. As Senator Johnson said, we need to take charge and move out here. And the good news is, you know, people hear me talk, and a lot of times they just assume we're, we're SOL. No. Electrical engineers, if we turn this, these problems over to the electrical, electrical engineers, they can solve these. And, and they're, they are, they're solvable. And, and more on that later. So the EMP environments, there, there are three. I, I'm a physicist, so pardon, you know, just bear with me here. <laughs> I've got to have some physics in here. There are three aspects of the environment. E1 is caused by the gamma rays from the nuclear burst, very fast, very broadband, very high amplitude in the tens of uh, kilovolts per meter. E2 is from the neutrons, uh, and that's a, a much lower amplitude, slower pulse, very similar to lightning in its characteristics. And then E3 is the uh, plasma cause, the, the expanding fireball and the heated uh, layers of the ionosphere uh, distort the Earth's magnetic field and give you this late-time E3 effect. 
And the, just to reinforce E1 there, the top blue band there is very broadband, very high amplitude. E2, maybe a, a, a spectra out to a megahertz like lightning. And then E3 is down in the subhertz. Most of the energy is below one hertz. And uh, there uh, you're talking about volts per kilometer. So it's very low amplitude. E1 is caused by the gammas and you get uh, a coherent uh, uh, release of electrons in, in the atmosphere and the, the fields from each electron adds coherently. So the entire atmosphere becomes a giant phase during antenna for you electrical engineers out there. And then uh, uh, we don't worry about E2 that much because E2 technology, is protection technology is similar to lightning and there's a lot of lightning protection in the grid. So we don't worry so much about E2. And then E3 uh, affects only the, because of its low frequency uh, and low amplitude, affects only the uh, long, really long lines. And just to give you some idea of the of the of the currents uh, coupled by E1, uh, you, you're talking on on the the power grid actually couples the highest uh, currents and highest voltages, but you get, you're getting thousands of amps, and uh, in excess of a megavolt for the the high overlet, overhead lines. For the solar storm environments, very similar to E3. Uh, you get when you have a, a a coronal mass ejection from the sun, you get a stream of neutrons very intense stream of neutrons, and those are, are uh, conducting, and they also interfere with the Earth's magnetic fields and, and create pulses uh, similar to the uh, EMP E3. In the chart there, um, you'll see uh, there's a red, a very uh, uh, sharp pulse. That's what you would get from uh, the, uh, the E3 from a nuclear uh, detonation, expanding fireball, and then the uh, low, lower, wider green pulse there is what you would get from a a, uh, a solar storm, so you can see. But they're in in in. Uh, they're both uh, considered quasi DC. They they the, the EMP E3 lasts for hundreds of seconds, and the uh, the uh, E3 pulse, uh, the GMD pulses, can last for several minutes. Uh, uh, but the same protection. The important point: the same protection techniques are are applicable to both of those. So just to, to reinforce, the uh, E3 and GMD affect only long-line system, long-line networks. That would be the electric grid, long-haul communications, and pipelines. And then E1, you get all the above, all the E3-affected long-line systems. Plus, because it has short wavelengths, it's a very broadband, uh, it will couple to uh, uh, electronics in general, as shown in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, the inset there. Protection, we know how to protect. We've been protecting systems since 1960. The Minuteman was the first system that we uh, protected. And uh, uh, the DHS has recently issued a protection guidelines for uh, uh, our national enterprise. And uh, they base theirs uh, largely on the, the DOD mill standard, 188, 125. And uh, the, the idea is you build a barrier, put your electronics inside a barrier, and protect uh, each penetration. The little black boxes are where, the, where you have a penetration. You put voltage limiters and filters. And uh, uh, the, uh, you don't have to protect entire buildings. Uh, it's, it's much less expensive and expedient to isolate your most critical electronics in, in, into a small area that you can protect inside of a, a shielded uh, uh, closet or, or a container. 
and it's very important to certify the protection. And, and DOD has, has developed and certified uh, uh, and protected uh, the, the hundreds of systems. We, we know how to do this. Uh, for the high-voltage grid systems, the previous chart was for low-voltage data communication system protection. For the high-voltage systems, you use a little different uh, technique. You're still limit, limiting the currents and voltages into these uh, high-voltage systems. But uh, for the transformers, you use uh, 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 ground-induced current blockers. And those are capacitors. And... Uh, um, and then you also uh, need to use voltage limiters, metal oxide bristers or spark gaps uh, to limit the E1 voltages. Distribution, the smaller transformers you see up on the, on the poles, uh, we know they're vulnerable. Uh, DOE has tested those. And they need E1 protection and uh, that using voltage limiters. High voltage breakers also uh, are a problem because they... Uh, the E3 prevents uh, zero crossing, and the breakers may not uh, trip, open, and close as they should, which could cause problems. And then the big generators may need protection, but we don't have any test data on those. So there's an, there's an unknown area where uh, Scott McBride out at Idaho has got some work cut out for him there. Now, uh, the EMP Commission, uh, what I'm highlighting here are uh, the findings from its most recent reports. And uh, so uh, they, they've made a compelling case for protection. The, the uh, infrastructure is, is, is vulnerable. And, uh, and we, we believe that a, a EMP would not be used in, 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 by itself, but there would be a combined arms uh, t uh, attack that would include a cyber a precursor and, and, and then the EMP and kinetic attacks after that. So we need to look at EMP in, a co in combination and use a multi-hazard approach by identifying the most critical nodes and making sure they're protected against uh, the multiple hazards. Um, we see that federal attention to EMP, as, as Senator Johnson uh, mentioned, is, has been hollow. Uh, the, we, we studied several recent reports on, on our infrastructure uh, and uh, find that EMP is not even mentioned in, in most of those. In fact, was one example of the latest nuclear posture review, federal nuclear posture review doesn't even mention EMP. So EMP is not even on the red, radar screen, let alone is, is much, much being done, done about it. Um, we believe that protecting and defending the grid is, is, is affordable and can be accomplished uh, with minimum disruption of the present system. I've got a little chart, and I won't go into the, little, the uh, top right inset there. Uh, uh, shows how you how we can how we can find the optimum investment, but it turns out that the cost for EMP hardening is is very small compared to the cost of possible losses. Uh, we believe that uh, DoD needs to increase its engagement. Uh, DoD has by far the most expertise in in. Uh, uh, protecting and, and testing systems and uh, has a, just a, a wealth of knowledge that needs to be shared with other government agencies and, and, the, and the industry, our industry. Um, we, we, when the EMP Commission uh, began its, its work in 2016, the latest uh, uh, session, uh, there was not an unclassified E3 uh, waveform uh, that was, that was uh, useful, and so we actually uh, have defined one using Russian test data and extrapolating tests of their data from their 1962 shots over, over Kazakhstan. And that, that curve is shown in the lower right. Um, 
There are regulatory impediments to uh, protection. Uh, the big problem is uh, the FERC doesn't have the, uh, the legal authority to compel the industry uh, to, uh, to act. I, I look at FERC as more of a giant brake pedal. They can request uh, uh, the, the industry to develop standards uh, for themselves and, and, and uh, approve or disapprove uh, what, what the industry uh, Right, but if they disapprove, that means that the industry goes back and rewrites the standards. So it's it's a, not a very optimal uh, uh, standards uh, and enforcement uh, regimen at this at this point. Um, and also, as as Senator Johnson said, the current institutional authorities are, are disjoint, and there's there's no one in charge. There's really no one in charge. Uh, Heritage asked me uh, to. Uh, um, indicate what we know and what we don't know. We certainly know enough to get started. And uh, the, uh, our, the entreaty from uh, Senator Johnson, we, we, can, we know how to get, get out in the field and harden uh, uh, our, our systems. We have well-vetted environment standards, uh, both uh, DOD and in industry. We know the failure levels for uh, common systems. Uh, there's a DOD tri-service database at Kirtland Air Force Base, and uh, that both the DOE and uh, uh, the, the uh, electromagnetic uh, interference uh, folks have, have lots of data. We have uh, protection engineering standards and guidelines uh, uh, for the, the low-voltage systems, you know, the data center-type systems. And we have implemented protection on hundreds of systems. Uh, the DOD is, is, is the, uh, certainly most experienced, but the industry, power industry, is actually stepping up to the plate. Uh, there's three uh, power industry control centers that have been hardened, and there are 400 substation control houses that have been hardened. But we still have some research to do. Um, we have not, as of yet, in, in a rigorous fashion, determined the most critical nodes that would require EMP protection. In order to, we can't, we obviously can't protect everything, but being able to whittle that, the problem down, uh, there's some work, there's an analysis and modeling that needs to be done. There's a GMD standard out there that NERC has, has issued, but it's, uh, still, it's, it's, it's still not uh, uh, ready for prime time. Uh, it's, it's lower, the, uh, the levels that they're, they're, uh, they have advertised are lower than the me measure GMD from past solar storms. So they're, they're, but FERC has requested a rework, so that's happening with the EPRIs involved in that. And then there are unknown failure levels for, for some of the major bulk power grid components. One of the reasons we haven't done testing is these transformers cost uh, five to $10 million each, and we need to test them to failure, and, and they're hard to move, and, and, and uh, uh, the generators are even more expensive. So we don't have uh, comprehensive test data on the big transformers either E1 or E3, or the, the generators. Virtually no testing on the bulk power generators. So that's a, 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 a area where we need to get out to Idaho and do, or, or, and, or there are other places that, they, that could certainly be done. But we need a, it would be good to have a national test bed. So there are some uh, areas where we need, we need more uh, uh, research, more, uh, more data. So just some closing thoughts. Um, the EMP community and the electric power industry don't certainly don't agree on everything, but there's much common ground. And uh, I was asked to testify for the, on the behalf of the EMP Commission in front of FERC uh, uh, in July of 2017. And I, I think these six points are areas where we can agree. And I talked with Frank Koza, who's uh, 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 one, 
in charge of uh, reliability for uh, uh, PJM, I believe. But he he agreed. I sat on the airplane with him and talked about these. Uh, but we, there are six areas where I think the, we are on the same sheet of music, where the Venn diagrams over, overlap. And uh, you can read those. But we, we need to work together. We need public-private partnerships between the government and industry. And with the industry needs to be able to recapture costs. Uh, we need a unified model of the national grid that, that we can use to develop the prior, needed priorities. Um, black start plan nation, nationwide for very large area blackouts. And then a single accountable national authority. And then capital investments and cost recovery. Uh, I, I believe that, uh, uh, that you know, so part of the burden needs to be borne by the taxpayer, but I believe that there, there's ways to do cost sharing, which will bring the utilities more close, you know, more heavily uh, engage, engaged and, and uh, help, help them to own, the, own this problem. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I probably over... over but there's, there's a summary. I've made all those points. I'll, I'll stop now. Dr. Baker, thank you very much. And uh, that was fascinating. And so, uh, Mr. Brown, sir, we'll turn this over to you. Great. Thank thanks. you. Thanks very much. And thanks for the invitation. And uh, congratulations to Michaela and the group here at Heritage. They've put together an excellent backgrounder that is uh, concise but comprehensive. Uh, look at this issue. So uh, congratulations to you all. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Just a quick uh, background on Exelon. We are a public utility holding company, as you heard, headquartered in Chicago. We have utilities in Chicago, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and uh, here in Washington. Uh, we've also got uh, the largest retail wholesale uh, power group in the country. Our Constellation brand uh, provides uh, retail electricity to 2 million customers across the country. If you've got a choice of uh, provider, Constellation is going to be one of those choices. Uh, we also serve about two-thirds of the Fortune 100 uh, through Constellation. And then we've got one of the largest generating fleets in the country, a mix of nuclear, uh, natural gas, wind, solar, hydro. Uh, so we're excited to, to be here today and uh, uh, comment. Um, you know, I think that our commitment to reliability is obviously our top priority, and you'll hear that across the utility industry. Uh, keeping the lights on and the gas flowing is job number one for us. Uh, the Edison Electric Institute has estimated that the electric utility industry is responsible for 5% of the nation's gross domestic product, and they call it the first five because the other 95% requires electricity. So it's a critically important uh, issue for us and increasingly important to, to keep, uh, keep the power on. Uh, the threat that we have looked at historically has really evolved. You know, historically, we thought of reliability in terms of being able to to protect against uh, natural events, extreme weather, uh, whether it's hot or cold, uh, winds or floods, as we've seen down in the Carolinas recently, uh, or solar uh, activity. Uh, since 9-11, there's been an increased uh, focus on man-made and malicious uh, attacks, whether they be cyber, uh, physical, uh, or other. Um, and as we look at the various risks that are out there facing us, we kind of try to screen them uh, to kind of allocate our resources uh, accordingly. Uh, we look at the likelihood of the event, obviously the consequences uh, that the event will have, uh, the feasibility of preventing it from happening, uh, our ability to respond and recover, and again, how to allocate our resources in the most efficient way. EMP clearly falls into a low likelihood, but high prob or low likelihood, high consequence uh, category. 
Uh, and it's, so it's something that we take seriously. I think one of the things that you heard uh, from the senator is that we, we do have more work to do in terms of the study uh, of this issue and, and what it means for the industry. So we've really been uh, trying to focus on enhancing our critical asset prote- protection, um, focusing on making sure that those areas of the grid that maybe uh, or were subject to a single point of failure uh, have redundant systems in place, uh, we're stockpiling spare equipment, including transformers, uh, in the event that we lose them for whatever reason it might be, and really developing a strategy to kind of minimize the impact and make sure that the recovery is as quick and uh, painless as possible. When you look at the current regulatory regime that we're subject to, uh, there are a variety of players uh, at all levels of government. Obviously, the Department of Energy and the Department of Homeland Security are at the top of that list. Uh, the North American Electric Reliability Corp- uh, Corporation, which has critical infrastructure protection standards that we have to comply with. Uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, as you heard, state regulatory body- bodies. Uh, and one of the real unappreciated bodies that we do a lot of work with is the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Committee. This is a, an entity that brings together CEOs from a couple of dozen utilities from each of the trade associations in the sector that cover generation, transmission, distribution, brings together the uh, government actors, whether it's DOE and DHS, uh, law enforcement like the FBI and others, to really make sure that we are as coordinated as possible, uh, not only in terms of being aware of what the threat assessment is, but how to address those threats and how to recover in a coordinated manner. So I think we've made dramatic progress from where we were 10 or 20 years ago when we would get a mysterious phone call telling us that we had big problems on our system, but they couldn't tell us what those were because we didn't have the proper clearances. Uh, Today, the ESCC provides a vital clearinghouse function for us. Uh, We have people in each of our utilities who have got security clearances, so they're able to work closely with the government and law enforcement to understand the nature of the threat and what we need to be doing to protect against those. Uh, The Department of Energy, back in January of 2017, put together an electromagnetic pulse resilience action plan uh, to address a lot of these uh, issues. That includes everything from improved uh, sharing of information, as as we've talked about, identifying priority infrastructure, uh, testing uh, and promoting mitigation and, and protection approaches, enhancing response and recovery capabilities, and sharing best practices. And so we're, we're coming along well on that. Uh, we also use voluntary standards uh, from NIST and others. Uh, and then we're working very closely with the national labs, uh, the Department of Defense Research, and uh, the industry to look at a few central questions. You know, how does the EMP impact the grid components and the grid as a whole? Uh, not only what do the E1, E2, E3 waves do individually, what do they do collectively? Uh, when they impact our equipment, uh, how do we inform the development of EMP-resistant grid components, and how do we develop best practices to limit the impacts? The Electric Power Research Institute in 2016 announced a three-year study on EMP uh, in conjunction with the national labs, with the Department of Energy, and with about 58 utilities. Uh, The last segment of that study is due early next year. And they're really looking at a a handful of things, the scientific basis for investments uh, to mitigate EMP, developing hardening and mitigation options, developing recovery plans, 
Uh, they've completed the assessment of the impact of E3, and their, uh, their initial assessment is that only a small number of transformers would be at risk, uh, probably numbering in the dozens. Um, and again, they're looking right now at uh, E1, E2, and again, the combination of those three uh, waves together. So the industry priorities as we move forward are looking at uh, maintaining the ESCC and the government partnerships that we've developed, uh, maintaining the NERC and FERC standards drafting process, uh, supporting federal research and development on grid security techniques and expediting technology transfer to the uh, private sector, continuing to promote electric company investments to protect the grid and supporting the associated cost recovery of those investments as you heard touched on a few minutes ago, and then supporting the collaborative efforts of electric utilities and state and federal agencies to address the threats to the grid. So uh, we're trying to address these knowledge gaps uh, so that we can take the, the appropriate steps, make sure that there aren't any unintended consequences that we'd uh, suffer if we uh, rush to deploy a, a system before these studies are, are done. Uh, but in the meantime, um, looking to set up initiatives like the spare transformer equipment program where we have spare transformers uh, in the United States already and pre-positioned around the country. We've also worked cooperatively with a number of agencies and companies like railroads to make sure that if we need to move uh, transformers in an expedited manner, that we have the ability to do that. We've kind of pre-cleared things and, and worked with people on what that process would look like uh, so that we really um, minimize the recovery time necessary in case something uh, catastrophic happens. Well, thank you very much. And uh, Ms. Dodge, over to you, please. I'm going to sit back okay. and read the 3 o'clock one. Thank you so much for coming today. We've heard from very impressive speakers. And thank you so much for coming and carving out time on this today, particularly today. I'm going to talk about an EMP as a national security threat. Um, it is a perfect asymmetric threat. We rely on safe and reliable supply of electricity for every single aspect of our lives, from making coffee to paying. But not only for our civilian lives, but our military operations rely on reliable supplies of electricity and then data that um, that need or data from systems that need electricity. And that's what makes an EMP a perfect um, weapon of choice for our potential adversaries, even though they may not be as sort of comparatively strong as the United States. Um, the best and most efficient way to deliver an EMP is to put a nuclear weapon on a ballistic missile and detonate it high in the atmosphere. And of course, the higher the nuclear weapon detonation, the higher the impacted area. You also mitigate some of the problems, um, design and engineering problems that stem from um, the need to have, for example, survivable re-entry or sophisticated targeting. And now you create different problems for you, for example, how to time the fuse in a way that you impact as large an area as you want. But even a localized attack, to the extent that sort of we can consider a nuclear weapon attack on the United States localized, uh, would have um, devastating impacts and would cost um, billions of dollars and um, thousands of lives. How do we know that? 
because we have some experience with events um, that were EMP-like, even though they never rose to the uh, seriousness uh, that um, nuclear weapon detonation would have. So in 2003, we had a one-day blackout in the northeastern United States and in Canada. The cascading power failures impacted uh, supply of electricity in New York, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Ontario. Uh, residents were soon advised to boil water as the sewage systems failed. Uh, they did not have uh, power. They did not have electricity. There were no traffic lights. And so, you know, traffic was probably what we experience in D.C. on a daily basis. But that's not very common in other parts of the country. Um, cell phones, cables, internet services were all disrupted. And industrial production was shut down. So, for example, in Detroit, some of the um, some of the auto plants were closed for a week. So that single one day long event caused between six to ten billions um, dollars worth of damage, and that is just one day. And of course, there is a massive difference between an event that causes a disruption, but all of your systems continue to work the next day. In an event like an EMP where you have damage to your equipment and you cannot just bring it back online once the event passes. Um, and I think, um, you know, we talked about some of the uncertainties of how some of the equipment, how long would it be offline? Well, it would be offline long enough to throw us into a, into a, state, a state of chaos, that's for sure. So what is the one of the best ways to protect uh, against this type of a threat? And um, that's for us, that's a comprehensive layered ballistic missile defense systems, including interceptors in space. And now we have a national defense strategy that talks about return of the great power competition. And maybe that means Russia and China. Well, if it means Russia and China, we have to be serious about having comprehensive layered missile defense system that is capable of defeating ballistic missile threats from countries like Russia and China. But MDR is not out yet and remains to be seen when it will be out. But hopefully, in some way, uh, we will address this issue. And as you said, we did not do that in the NPR. Um, so we have another opportunity to take a crack at this. Now, of course, there is North Korea and Iran. Um, and for years, we have focused our um, ballistic missile defense policy to counter those um, relatively less sophisticated ballistic missile threats. Now, nuclear weapons are not the only means how a terrorist can deliver an EMP attack. And that's bad news for us because nuclear weapons are still fairly difficult endeavors um, in terms of, particularly in terms of getting enough material to actually have a functioning nuclear weapon. Radio, uh, radio frequency weapons can, cost, uh, can be used to generate more localized EMP effects. Um, the components to build these devices are commercially available. They are relatively transportable uh, and relatively portable. They are more covert. Um, now, disadvantage is that you need to get closer to the target um, 
but it's not insurmountable target, particularly considering that there is thousands of transformers um, and supporting infrastructure around. The output and the damage they cause um, just depends on the size and the technology. Uh, but generally speaking, um, they can be as small as fitting in a suitcase or you know, as large as fitting on a truck. An adversary could choose to use multiple devices at multiple locations to increase damage to the United States. And again, again the goal would be to cause those cascading failures that make it so difficult for uh, the reliability, reliability of the electric supply was not um, significantly affected in terms of consumers, but it was, it was a challenge to, to make it that way. Uh, and that was just one attack. Um, now, it, that attack lasted less than 20 minutes and caused um, $15 million worth of damage. Now, if that doesn't sound bad enough, it, it kind of gets worse. Um, in 2013, the FERC concluded, concluded that if you disable as few as nine um, critical high-voltage transformer substations during peak time when um, demand for electricity is high, you could cause coast-to-coast um, -coast blackout in the United States. So again, that perfect asymmetric weapon, perfect asymmetric weapon, how to attack the United States, because for every single, of, uh, every single aspect of our life, we depend on electricity. Now our background, um, we were hoping to provide sort of the beginning of a roadmap to, to, to be able to address some of these issues and some of these fundamental problems that um, our speakers touched upon. And I think um, based on the criticism that we got from everyone, <laughs> we walked that line um, fairly well. But I encourage you to read it. Uh, and of, if you have any questions, uh, Professor Baker and, and Mr. Brown will be happy to answer them. <laughs> Thank you so much. And Michaela as well. Thank you very much, Michaela. <laughs> and everybody. That's fascinating, and, and obviously different perspectives here. Uh, we have some time for questions, if the audience uh, has any at this point. Yes, sir. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Wait for us to mobilize our microphone here. Uh, Jerry Johnson, National Religious Broadcasters, thank you for the presentation. Has there been any discussion um, in your circles about um, pushing the activation of the cell phone, the FM chip in the cell phone, you know, without the internet and without cell towers, I mean, everyone would still have a cell phone and there's a hidden FM chip in the cell phone. In Europe, they're mostly on, but only about a third of American cell phones have that switched on. And I think Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, called upon Apple to turn on those switches after Puerto Rico so people could, could get emergency. Has anyone talked about that as a sort of a strategy after? Um, have you heard anyone discussing that? Anybody? I haven't. Anybody in the audience want to take a swing at that? Because I, I didn't even know there was such a chip in my phone. And so now you've piqued my interest. So I apologize for Seven, iPhone 7 and 8 do not have it. Okay. Android, you'll see all kinds of uh, apps you can purchase 
online, but it's it's something to think about as an emergency radio. If the government was transmitting, people could receive it. Thank you. Sorry, we couldn't be more helpful. Yes, sir, in the back. Uh, Tom Ayala with the National Taxpayers Union. Uh, Chairman Johnson and some of you on the panel have noted that taxpayers have an interest in protecting the national grid. Um, obviously, that's important for taxpayers, consumers, energy companies, and the federal government. Um, but at the same time, the Trump administration um, has submitted a draft to the Department of Energy that would essentially um, bail out some of these energy companies, uh, nuclear and coal. Um, should supporters of the free market uh, be concerned that the Trump administration is using national grid as uh, a straw man to subsidize these energy companies? Mr. Brown, we'll, we'll toss that to you first, if you don't mind. Sure. And I, I think that's a, a complicated issue um, that we probably do need another panel on, <laughs> uh, frankly. Um, you know, I, I can just talk about nuclear, uh, for example. Um, we're the largest nuclear operator in the country. We own and operate uh, 23 of the nation's 98 reactors. Uh, we just shut one down a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we are scheduled to shut down Three Mile Island, the uh, other reactor there, next September uh, for economic reasons, even though it's got uh, decades left in its license and it's one of the best-run plants in the world. Um, I think that the power industry is going through a dramatic transformation right now. Uh, you've got historically low prices with a glut of natural gas and a glut of renewables. Uh, forcing prices down, and you don't have any recognition in the market right now of the unique factors that nuclear power brings to the uh, market in terms of resilient power. Uh, once you load fuel in a nuclear reactor, it runs for 18 to 24 months nonstop, regardless of uh, weather uh, or other uh, conditions that might impact uh, delivery. Uh, it's not vulnerable to a supply disruption on, on fuel as a result. Um, and it's the largest emissions-free generation source in the country. Uh, we have about 20% of the uh, share of electricity production comes from nuclear, but 60% of the emissions-free generation in the U.S. comes from nuclear. And yet in very, very few markets is there any compensation of the plants for those, those purposes. So. Uh, I think the Department of Energy was looking at nuclear for those reasons, but also because of the unique national security role that it plays and the uh, partnership that it has with, uh, with the Department of Defense and others as we look at geopolitical balance. Uh, as you may know, there are a lot of uh, countries around the world, primarily in Asia and the Middle East, that are looking for new reactor technologies, one of them Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, if the Saudis are going to choose a U.S. technology, uh, it's important for them to see that we have a viable uh, nuclear industry in the U.S. And those, those uh, partnerships that we form are effectively 100-year partnerships. It takes about a decade to build the plant. Uh, the plants can run for 60 to 80 years, and then they're decommissioned. So, uh, you know, from my perspective, I'd much rather have a U.S. actor in place uh, with U.S. technology that's been certified by U.S. regulators as safe. Uh, rather than ceding the field to, to other countries. I'll just add, we, uh, Heritage published something on this about two weeks ago, Rachel, I want to say, two or, th two or three weeks ago about that particular subject that we were not 
foundation as a whole not terribly in favor of using uh, the federal government to uh, protect those particular plants that were being talked about in that draft rule, I guess it was. It's not a final rule yet, is it? No, it was actually just a, a draft memo draft of memo, yeah. uh, potential options. So it, it's, I don't think there's any anything pending. Anything to add to that, Rachel? I could follow up with a question. Um, how do you see the government um, intervening to protect the grid without skewing the market? Protecting the grid on the generation side or on on the EMP side? Um, look, I think, uh, as we've seen, the government picks winners and losers uh, every day in the power markets, uh, whether it's tax incentives or mandates or other subsidies or, or incentives. So uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any easy answer there. Can I, can I comment on the, the previous question? Uh, um, I'm, I'm a director of a nonprofit foundation for resilient societies, and we are. We think that uh, the uh, nuclear and the coal plants, uh, we need to be careful how we, you know, if and how we close those because they have reserve fuel, reserve uh, capacity that the natural gas uh, plants don't have. You know, natural gas line fails from EMP, that supply collapse shut. But the coal plants tend to have large, you know, reserves, and the nuclear plant, you know, they, I think they refuel those. Maybe the fuel will last a couple or three years on, the, on those. So if you have a, one of these wide area blackouts, those plants would be very, very helpful in, get, in getting the, the grid restarted. Uh, and uh, if you look at on the online, the, the FERC, FERC docket on this question, uh, found, look for the Foundation of Resilient Societies uh, um, comment on that, and it explains our rationale. I will, I, I will just add that kind of on the broader level, at the end of the day, the debate is about how the, the, the framing is how much of, of the civilian grid is a national security problem, right? So if you see that as a pressing national security problem, what's so one of the primary, you know, one of the primary responsibilities of the federal government is to provide for the common defense. And so that becomes part of your calculus. Now, if you think that it's not as pressing of an issue, then you, I think, uh, can accept more uh, freedom and more time to have kind of the market figure it out on their own without um, more government, without yet more government intervention. I think the statistics on DOD is that uh, they get 99% of their electricity from the grid. So, gentleman here in the pink shirt. Hi, uh, Jeremy Cerrone, Elite Safe Cybersecurity. Uh, my question's for Mr. Brown. Uh, could you talk a little more about uh, the incentive structures that you guys face uh, individually as a company and more broadly as an industry? Because um, this is, you know, of course, a problem with, as you've said, kind of a relatively low risk but very high, very serious consequences, um, which you know, I could easily imagine might wipe out your entire company and you know numerous other companies in your supply chain. Sure. And, you know, I had a boss who uh, used to always talk about killing the nearest snake. Uh, so, you know, as, as she was looking at prioritizing things, uh, whatever the, the closest threat was, was what she went after first. 
Um, and I think that's largely the way we view things. I mean, um, you know, an EMP event, as catastrophic as it would be, it's a limited number of actors who need a very sophisticated technology. Um, and we have a national defense mechanism to, to protect us against that. Cyber, uh, as you've heard, can be done by somebody on their bed, uh, you know, uh, with, a, with a laptop. Um, and so you've got many more players um, and a much higher probability of, of attacks. And in fact, obviously, we see those. I mean, uh, thousands, if not millions, of hits on a regular basis uh, into our systems. So that's where we're really focused uh, like a laser these days. And again, it's not, not one of those where, I mean, I think we're realistic. It's a matter of when, not if. Uh, some of our systems are compromised. So we, we also focus on um, limiting the impact and then recovering very quickly uh, from those. Uh, as the largest nuclear operator, uh, we might bring a little unique perspective to that in that, um, you know, our, our nuclear plants are not, uh, I'm cautioned to get getting too technical and saying that they're air-gapped. They're not technically air-gapped because we have data going out from them, but they're unidirectional diodes, so you can't uh, get into the systems, uh, but you can get information out. Uh, and I'll just tell you, it's, it's uh, been remarkable over the last several years how much our uh, cyber hygiene uh, requirements have changed. We we have very few computers at our company that have an active thumb drive anymore. Uh, certainly going into the nuclear plants, you're not allowed to bring anything in. Uh, when we get software updates from the vendors, uh, those disks are, uh, you know, specially wrapped and everything, and then we uh, put them into a separate computer, verify that what they sent is what we got, uh, and only then do we update our systems. Uh, so we've got um, a very uh, robust uh, program in place because, uh, you know, to your point, I mean, we've got the incentives. We're, if we're not generating electricity or delivering it, we're not making money. Uh, so uh, keeping the lights on is, is job one for us. Just to follow, I found that fascinating because I didn't know about the air gap thing. And so that is the entirety of a nuclear power plant is that way, like even the thing that monitors the levels and the cooling lakes and things like that is all kind of set up. That's, that's, that's all internal. Yeah. And then we have data streams that will go out from the plant mm -hmm. to, say, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh -huh. uh, or to our own internal, but you can't send data to it. into the system. Okay. Right. And that's, is that industry nuclear power-wide or just your yeah, that's, plant? No, that's, that's industry-wide. You know, one of the great untold stories of the nuclear industry is uh, post Three Mile Island, uh, the industry created something called the Institute of Nuclear Power Operations. It's down in Atlanta. It's an organization that shares best practices among nuclear units. So if you have a problem arise, you'll alert INPO. They'll send a, a bulletin to every other plant of the similar type and say, be on the lookout for this. Uh, it's really um, it's probably the most effective self-regulating body in the country, I would argue. And we all hold ourselves to a, a very high standard. Uh, the CEOs are, are the members of the INPO Board of Directors. And if their uh, performance is not up to snuff, they get called on the carpet in front of their peers. So it's a very, very robust organization and a, a great success story um, that uh, we should talk more about at some point. Um, I'm Frank Afney, again. I, just a sanity check here. It, it does seem to me, 
Mr. Brown, you make a very elegant case. It's one I'm familiar with. Uh, we participate in something called the Secure the Grid Coalition with the Foundation for Resilient Societies and Heritage and others. Um, there's a lot of whistling past the graveyard going on here, I'm afraid. We're looking at a problem that we can discount as a low probability, and yet every enemy of this country makes it clear in their nuclear doctrines that attacking our grid is one of the things they will do. Some of them we would like to think we've deterred. Some of them no, we're not so sure about. But the idea that you know our consultation mechanisms and our you know uh, EPRIs and you know Edison Institutes and so on are actually protecting the grid against that threat. Or for that matter, even the cyber threat. I, I just would commend you uh, some of the superb work the Foundation for Resilient Societies has been doing, notably in connection with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's ostensible oversight of what you're doing. And it, it's sorely lacking in light of the actual threat that Heritage and others of us have been documenting now for some time most especially the EMP Commission. And I just wanted to say thank you to George Baker for his service to that commission over many of these years. And, and a real concern I have is that uh, with the dismantling of the previous commission, with the real expertise that it brought to bear, we may get something that is an EMP threat commission, but that's not able to provide the kind of second opinion and challenge to the industry and challenge to the regulatory arms and, and for that matter, challenge to the uh, the executive branch as well that's certainly needed now. And I uh, just want to say in closing, uh, there is talk that there will be an executive order coming out of the National Security Council, the president. Um, I pray that it will actually insist that we protect the grid, not simply talk about, you know, the consultative mechanisms and the rest that are, um, may make us feel better about the vulnerability, but is unfortunately not actually navigating it. Thank you. We've got time for one more question, if there is one. In the back there, quickly. John Dotson. I'm an ex uh, Corps of Engineer <coughs> officer and uh, uh, developer, uh, among other things. We uh, we formed a group some years ago. Uh, when I discovered how vulnerable the grid really was, uh, we were getting ready to develop transmission, and my transmission guy, who's one of the best in the country, built the Neptune project, uh, said, you know, John, all these these lines up here, there's 200,000 miles of them, and they're about a meter apart. All you got to do is drop a chain across them, and they're dead. And if you know as much as this group knows, we had six engineer-led companies, you can take down the whole North American grid with no weapons. And I started thinking about that, and that was a pretty scary thought. So we have worked on this off and on for a number of years, and we've got folks from um, there are really four different cultures, and I want to add a few things that need to be done in order to, to solve this problem because it's not something that's small or it's going to happen overnight. Uh, even the studies and the and just trying to react is not good enough. You really need to do something so that at the moment we are in the same position we were in the, in the 1950s with the nuclear threat where the first strike could take us out.
completely. What we've been talking about is simple things like uh, weather cause emergencies. But when you have people, like the people I work with, that are deliberately getting ready to take down this grid, they can do it. And they can do it easily. Yeah, all the way, even ISIS could do it if they had a little bit of technical advice. So we, uh, we've got some people, some very high security clearances. We've got some folks in the government, out of the government. But we came to the conclusion some time ago that the only solution was really a public-private partnership. And the four cultures you need to deal with, besides the government and uh, obviously FERC and NERC and uh, NREL and INEL and, and Sandia, whom we did a crater with back 15 years ago, when we first developed the uh, first renewable-based microgrids, uh, we have to have the government first, but then you get the DOD because they've got real estate that you need to solve this problem with. You need rights of way, which is something the government can help with a great deal. And then you need the private sector tech companies, which turned out to be one of the easier problems when we went to them. We've got most of the big guys who build microgrids and transmission now signed up. And then the last and most difficult is the ones I've been working with for the last eight years, and that's the utilities. <laughs> the utilities own the grid, and whatever we do to protect or create a system that can withstand a first strike, uh, which we're vulnerable to today, it has to involve the utilities directly. And as I tried to explain, when the Obama administration called us into the Pentagon <clears throat> some years ago when they were just getting going, you don't order the utilities to do anything. That's not the way this uh, legal system is or authorized. That ship left somewhere back in the 20s. Uh, FERC, FERC gives national guidance, but the states regulate the utilities. Until you get the regulators and the utilities uh, favorably inclined to what you want to do, it's not going to work. So what we've done is we've, we've got utility folks with us. We think we finally... Utilities also have problems today, though, because unlike 20, 30 years ago, the, the cash cows and the monopolies are being threatened by a whole new paradigm. And we think we can help them with that. And because it's a national security project, we believe that we can form a coalition that will work here. So we're, we do believe, though, it has to be led by the private sector. We just don't think the government will ever be able to cover all the political requirements in, internally to, to get uh, complete agreement on any particular, unless somebody else pays for it. And that's what we're trying to do now. So um, this EMP is only one of three. You've got, you've got the cyber and you've got the physical. You've got to deal with all three. And the real solution will cover all three uh, to a degree where we will no longer be vulnerable to the first strike capability. Well, sir, thank you very much. And that's the last word on that subject, although there's a lot more words that could be spoken. That's all we're going to do today. And so please join me in thanking the panel. And of course, this recording will be available for posterity's sake on the internet. So thank you again.